0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba sambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba sambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba
1: Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self enlightened one so uh, for one or two who have just joined us uh, I've been over these past uh, few weeks going through the Buddha's life and using it as a sort of basis to uh, consider his teachings and uh, we finally come now to the years of teaching and uh, His final hours, his final days. So, if we recall to mind on that uh, wonderful, during that wonderful uh, night, he became enlightened. With the dawn, um, he—that's how they put it—in the the full moon of May, and he became uh, fully awakened and understood exactly why uh, he had been uh, in a state of dissatisfaction or suffering. And he spent the next uh, night or so considering the Dharma and going through the, especially the Wheel of Dependent Origination, which is the, uh, which was his uh, psychological paradigm as to why we get ourselves into such a dreadful states. And then after that, uh, his first thought was, who can I teach? Who can I pass this on to? Hmm? And. Uh, Then came the doubt that uh, people weren't, there wasn't anybody could think of that, really would be open to this. So if you consider that at that time, all the philosophies, all the understandings were all about the self. They were about, did the self annihilate? So there were some people who um, just presumed that when you died, you annihilated. uh, Would be equal to our materialists. There were those who believed in some sort of future life, uh, rebirth, but eventually you would annihilate. Uh, There were those who thought that, actually, that's all you did. You just kept being reborn, and there was not much you could do about it. It was just the way it was. And there were some who were uh, so convinced of that that they said, one teacher said, if you went down the one side of the Ganges and... um, uh, uh, did all sorts of compassionate and wonderful deeds and came up the other side uh, burning, murdering and and thieving, it wouldn't make a jot of difference. Uh, The karmic, um, your karmic line is already set, it was fated, and there's nothing you do. So all the philosophies around that time uh, were to do with the self and what happens to the self. So when he suddenly realised that this self that they were talking about was a phantasm, uh, they didn't actually exist, it was just a concept in the mind, then as he's thinking, well, you know, who can, I, who can I get this message across to, then he gets this block. Hmm? This is my own interpretation, you understand. that? Huh? And <clears throat> so it says in the scriptures that the great Brahma Sahampati came and said, no, Lord, he's, you know, do teach there are some people with only a little dust in their eyes. Now, we can either, you know, these days we'd be rather cynical of Brahma's amputee turning up. It's more in the sense that he had a second thought about it. But um, you must remember that there's always a little bit of propaganda in the in the Buddhist texts. And uh, Brahma, of course, is the highest of all gods in the Hindu pantheon. And that he should be coming down and asking the Buddha to teach uh, was simply saying that uh, the Buddha had gone beyond the teachings of his day. Hmm? So, uh, leaving that aside, uh, he then uh, decides to teach. Now, there are some writers whom you'll come across who said that he hesitated to teach, <clears throat> that, he wasn't, um, that he could have just sat there and, and simply done nothing, uh, you know, just sat in bliss until the body gave up. But uh, this, in a sense, goes completely contrary to his own teachings. The Eightfold Path, that we call the Eightfold Path, is one path. Um, if, uh, we can think of it as a, as a, as a highway with eight uh, lanes in it but I think we're closer to the mark if we think of a tight rope made of eight strands because it's so easy to fall off and, and that's how we find it. it's difficult to walk the path so these eight strands move together it's not uh, possible in the Buddha's teaching to separate out right understanding from its expression in action in, uh, in what we do So wisdom will naturally express itself into compassion. That's the whole point, that there's a flow downward and outward, downward, inward, into the very heart of our existence, of our being, for want of a better word, where once we've understood uh, such things, then of course there's that change of attitude in the heart. So that's why in the Eightfold Path we go from right understanding to right attitude. And and, uh, right understanding is always about These three characteristics, it's always about understanding the role of desire, it's always about undercutting the idea of self. And when that uh, translates, of course, that idea translates into the heart, then it uh, manifests as an outward going, an outward going. So when he talks about himself as a teacher, the word he uses is anu kampan. He says, uh, I as a teacher have done everything that a teacher could do for you out of compassion. Hmm? And, but the word isn't the usual word karuna, which you'll come across, but anukampan, which means moving towards the other, moving towards the other, an empathy, a sympathy, and that's what uh, drives him to uh, to teach. Um, so we can say that when the self goes, or as the self goes, we come, uh, we begin to understand this idea. This understanding of interdependency, interconnections, all that sort of stuff. Hmm? But of course, when that goes into the heart, that expresses itself in love, compassion, sympathetic joy. See, if it doesn't do that, then it just it can remain as a sort of um, uh, as a as an idea or as an, as a notion. Hmm? But it's not going to affect our behaviour until it moves into the heart. Now, in the Zen tradition, they will tell you that compassion arises naturally with wisdom. And I think we can take that as fairly true, but even so, we should uh, budget along a bit, because sometimes <laughs> sometimes we can, we can stay up in the head a bit too long. When it moves into the heart and we are in communication, where we are with people, then that naturally expresses itself by the way we speak, uh, kindly, appropriately, and all that, and how we uh, behave, in a gentle manner, things like that, not getting angry and killing people, and, and in our livelihood. So you can see there's an outward flow. So there's the Buddha, he's had this amazing insight, he's suddenly understood something uh, to which there is no further profundity, and he's thinking about it and he's worked it through, and as it drops into the heart, there's that movement outward of who can I, who can I bring to this sort of liberation? The doubt isn't whether he should do it or not. The doubt is whether people are ready for it. And once he's overcome that, he, he moves forward. So his first two, the first two that come to mind are his old teachers because uh, they, they trained him and he knew their, their, um, their religious and spiritual depth. Uh, but uh, they died. And when I was in Burma last, there was a statue which I'd never seen before, the, the actual mudra, the shape of it, and the Buddha was sitting there, and his hand was pointing like that towards the heart center. So I'd never seen it before and asked what it was. And I was rather touched when they said that it was the sadness he felt when he realized his two teachers are dead, and he wasn't able to pass on uh, the message of his, of his teachings. I thought it was rather touching. Then uh, the next people he thought about, of course, were the, uh, was his own five companions. So he walks, it's about a hundred and odd miles from where he was up to Isipatana Park, perhaps a little more, and uh, finds them there, and that's where he begins his teaching. So, even we ourselves, you see, we have to accept that once you're on the path, whether you like it or not, you become a teacher. Um, It might not be an official post, and you might not get paid for it, but you're immediately there as... As uh, somebody, as an exemplar, you see. So I think I've mentioned before that if uh, you tell somebody that you um, uh, that you meditate and that it's done you a powerful lot of good, and then they find you completely drunk in the gutter, then they they have second thoughts about their own medi- whether they want to do any of this meditation. So as soon as we take on a path, whether we like it or not, we have the responsibility of uh, being as best we can. Uh, an exemplar, and by that way, we are a teacher. So <clears throat> that uh, that question that that uh, you'll see discussed in in certain in, in various books, um, as far as I'm concerned, there was no there is no uh, doubt about the Buddha's desire to pass on the message. The compassion must come forward. When we look at the other tradition that there is of the Pacheka Buddha, the Buddha who's a private Buddha. In other words, somebody who simply becomes enlightened. It's not that they, it's not that they don't want to teach. Uh, the, uh, the idea is that they can't. They don't have that ability. Uh, something that uh, has to be learned. And this comes out in the Buddha himself. So he's, um, he's now got up from his seat and he's off, he's off searching his disciples and he comes across a samana, uh, another ascetic. And the ascetic looks at him and says, My, he says, you, you, you look very bright, you look very clear. I say, Who's your teacher? And the Buddha announces, I have no teacher, I'm the fully enlightened being, I, I know the cosmos in and out and so on and so, so forth. And the ascetic simply says, oh, yeah, he shakes his head and, and moves off. So he obviously learnt very quickly, that's not quite the, quite the way that you teach somebody. So... So then you'll see that in the scriptures, if you, learn, if you read the early parts of the scriptures like the Nipata Sutta, it's not so formalized, four of these, ten of those, twelve of them. It's, uh, it's very personal and you, know, you can see that they are, they are memories of actual conversations that he's had with people. And it's only as he's teaching and as people come to him or want to remember what he's teaching that these mnemonics are worked out. So it's easy to remember if there are five of these and four of those and 37 uh, factors of enlightenment. So that sort of thing. And of course by the end of his uh, life it was beginning to turn into almost an academic exercise which later on turned into the Abhidhamma. So uh, the teaching was just part and parcel of his, uh, of his nature. And uh, when you go through his life, there's, uh, there's all sorts of incidents that uh, happen. Um, and I, I only cover a few, but just, just, um, just the sense of his uh, teaching. So there was one very dull monk who uh, was so dull that he couldn't... Uh, well, It said that as he remembered one phrase, it pushed the other phrase out. <laughs> so he never got beyond this one phrase. And uh, his brother said to him that, you know, really... He wasn't fit to be in the order because um, a part of it was trying to remember the Buddha's teaching. If he couldn't remember the Buddha's teaching, what the heck would he do? So when the Buddha heard about this, he he went to visit and um, immediately uh, gave him an exercise of just rubbing a piece, just actually taking a piece of clean cloth, wiping his face, the sweat on his face, and rubbing the cloth, and simply saying, Anicca, things uh, uh, tra- impermanence impermanence, and lo and betide in no shorter time as the scriptures say he became fully liberated the gloss on that in the, uh, the gloss on these in no length of time in the commentaries is around about 25 to 30 years so it's not, <laughs> it's not as though he just wiped his face a few times and bingo so <laughs> uh, I don't know whether you ever want to try that it didn't work for me so it's a, it's a case of understanding that he has this ability to, uh, the teacher has a marvelous ability to actually get into the person and just catch what they want. Another one is, of course, the very famous story of Ang- Angulimala. So Angulimala is a, is, uh, is a murderer of sorts. He's actually, according to the, the story, he's actually fulfilling a uh, demand made of him by his teacher who was jealous of him, fearful of him, taking over his position. And he demanded of him, as his guru uh, reward, like you, you give a present to your guru in those days, uh, that he collect, uh, so they say, a thousand little fingers. And uh, off he goes and does that. And at some point, uh, the Buddha either meets him by chance, or he's heard about him, or through his uh, powers, uh, understands that Angulimala is, um, is not a murderer in his heart, he's just been driven to this, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he knew of him because he was supposed to be a Brahmin. He's of a Brahmin caste. And uh, so the tale goes when Angulimala spies him and starts to hunt him down. Uh, the Buddha produces this um, magical trick of walking and yet always staying ahead of Angulimala who's racing and racing, trying to catch up. Then when Angulimala shouts out, stop, uh, monk, or stop ascetic, uh, the Buddha turns around and says, well, I have stopped. It's you that haven't stopped. And somehow that just cuts into Angulimala and makes him consider what he's, what he's actually doing. And, uh, and presumably in the following conversations with the Buddha, recognizes that he's fallen foul of, um, of, uh, of his own heart by following a, a tradition of, uh, of giving your, a present to the guru, even though that present was unwholesome. And again, he uh, he then takes on the Buddha's teaching. He becomes a, a, an order, a member of the order, which saves him from uh, execution by the king. By the way, who comes looking for him? And in no length of time becomes fully liberated. The other one, which is uh, I'm sure you all know, is Bahir of the bark cloth. So Bahia is a very old man, and this is um, and he only wears a bark cloth. <laughs> He's a He's a long-time ascetic, and he's not getting anywhere, and he's stuck, and he hears about this uh, the samana, the great samana, the great ascetic, and off he goes to find the Buddha. So when he finds the Buddha, uh, he says to him, you know, can you give me some teaching? Can you, you know, and he wants to sit down and talk about all his his issues, you know. And the Buddha says, well, this isn't the time, he says, because I'm I'm off on arms round. You see? And, he's, and and uh, and bahir to the bark cloth is. Is a very elderly person, so he says, listen, he says, I could die any minute. So, you know, (laughs) any minute I I could die. It's very important for me to hear any teachings you've got. So the Buddha simply says to him, in the seeing, there's only the seeing. In the hearing, there's only the hearing. In the cognition, or in cognizing, there's only the cognizing. And right there and then, Bahiya uh, breaks through the delusion and becomes fully enlightened. As the story goes, not long after leaving the Buddha, uh, walking along the street, an angry cow butted him to death. So he was extremely lucky that, <laughs> that the Buddha actually answered his question there and then. I love these stories. There's uh, also uh, another little story from Nanda, who was his half-brother. Um, and uh, he joins the order. And he's struggling and struggling to, uh, to practice and uh, falling into the error of over effort. And when the Buddha, and, and, and in that, and realizing that he's not getting anywhere, he uh, immediately thinks, uh, which is uh, understandable, that he's, he's wasting his time and he may as well uh, leave uh, the holy life, go back, um, live uh, the good lay life, uh, bring up some children, and. Uh, and um, hope for a better rebirth so when the Buddha hears this and, uh, and actually aspires that actually what's drawing him away is lust he sends him up into the highest he, he drags him up it seems into the highest heaven to see these most beautiful nymphs and, and uh, setting this as a, as, a, as a goal that he, that he could uh, actually attain that rather than, than go off and, and just be with human women he, he, then, <laughs> he then carries on with his practice and lucky for him he also, in no length of time, becomes fully liberated. So there's all these lovely little stories about how um, he was able just to, you know, really see what was necessary in a person as they approached him, see right into their heart and give them just the technique that they needed to uh, make a break. And you'll see that, uh, although in the scriptures um, you do get this idea that um, there's a, a basic technique around the breath and so on and so forth, um, you can see from these stories that actually anything that works will do Anything that brings us to some sort of realization of these three characteristics, the transience, uh, how we create suffering for ourselves and the not-self, will do. And just last one, uh, just to finish this off, there's uh, his, his sense of humor sort of comes through every so often. Doesn't, Humour doesn't carry very well. Um, and uh, you've got to, as it, as it were, presume that this must have been a rather humorous scene. What uh, In those days, if you remember, there was this uh, great idea of ascetic practice. So somebody leaves the sensual world rec- recognising that the sensual world is not going to be a place where they're going to be happy So they go off and they practice jhana. So it's following the same path of the Buddha. The Buddha isn't doing anything uh, up until his sitting under that tree that lots of people weren't doing at that time. And uh, they get into the jhana and all that and the happy states and then they realize, well, that doesn't do it. And then uh, the next thing is to blame the body. The body's at fault. So, So then we get into this sort of ascetic practice. And there was some very strange ideas. So if you think there's some wacko ideas going around these days, uh, you've been living at the time of the Buddha. So there are these two ascetics who are called the dog ascetic and the cow ascetic. And the understanding is that um, they're going to preempt any future rebirth as a cow or as a dog by living as a cow or as a dog right here in this very life. So the dog ascetic approaches the Buddha with his friend, the cow ascetic, and says, uh, Lord... My friend here is practicing the kawasetic practice. What will be his future? What will be his born? What happens to him when he dies? And the Buddha says, don't ask me. And his second time, the dog ascetic said, Lord, please, you know, do give that And the Buddha said, please, don't ask me. And for the third time, they insisted that the Lord give him some, give them some answer. So, uh, the blessed one said... Uh, This uh, cow ascetic, he is developing cow perceptions. He is developing cow feelings. He is developing cow consciousness. Therefore, upon death, he will be reborn as a cow. (laughs) And the cow ascetic wept heavily and finally came to his senses. And then, having come to his senses, he approaches the Lord and says, Blessed one, my friend is practicing the dog ascetic practice." (laughs) And I'll leave you to finish the story. So <laughs> you, get <these laughs> you get these lovely little instances in the scripture where obviously the Buddha's having a bit of a, you know, pulling somebody's leg. So uh, <clears throat> there was, um, I, heard, I heard somebody say, I, I can't remember where that, the Buddha was only, uh, there's only one or two incidences in the scriptures where he's actually engaged in a compassionate act. And in a sense, that undermines the whole point of, uh, of teaching. A teacher is, or a teacher is, uh, or when somebody is actually teaching anybody, that is a compassionate act. Whether it's a parent, a parent teaching a child, or a, a teacher in a school, or, or a Dharma teacher, anybody. Once you teach, you're you're you're, you're offering something. Yeah? What you're offering is is your own wisdom and skills and understandings. So. When we talk about uh, compassionate acts, uh, you know, it needn't be something quite so, uh, shall we say, so, um, so obvious as, say, you know, uh, serving in a leper colony or something. You know, it doesn't, uh, compassionate acts can be very small and uh, very simple, and, and, and they might not need at all any sense of bravery or, or anything of that nature. So when it comes to what you might. Um, Look at uh, what you might see as actual acts of compassion, as, as these days, as people might see it. there are you know just one or two. So remember the lovely story of Kisagotomi, so she had lost her child, and with the dead child was looking around for somebody to bring it back to life or to do something for the dead child and bringing it to the Buddha, um, he simply set her this task um, of finding a mustard seed, of which, of course there are. Over plenty in India from a house, but with the proviso, but the proviso that nobody had died in that house. So, Kisagottami is in a state of uh, desperate bereavement, leaves the child with the Buddha and goes off searching for the seed. And going from house to house, the message is the same. Sure, I've got plenty of mustard seeds, but my lord, if you talk, this house has known death, it's known death from. Uh, Who knows when, right up to this present day, so-and-so died, grandfather died, this child died, and so on. And very slowly, it sort of dawns on her that um, uh, death is just part of life. And this brings her to her senses, and coming back to the Buddha, she takes refuge in him, and again, later on, joins the order, and in no length of time, becomes fully liberated. There's also a lovely scene where there's a monk who's uh, sick and uh, the Buddha hears about this and uh, goes to visit him and the poor man's got dysentery and he's in a dreadful state. It's all over him. And uh, he says, well, why aren't the monks uh, helping you, you see? And the monk replies, well, I don't do anything for the monks so (laughs) so they're not going to do anything for me. So the Buddha goes to the monks and says, look, this, this man is sick, he's dying. Why aren't you doing anything for him? And they say, well, he doesn't do anything for us so... We won't do anything for him. <laughs> so uh, seeing the, uh, the callousness of the monks, the Buddha, with Ananda, go and tend to this fellow. And then he gives a talk to the monks, saying, you know, you have no mother and no father, and if, uh, if you don't look after each other, who will? And there he is. He's, he's being a nurse to this monk. It's one of these little incidences which, as it were, brings out his, his humanity, Even there on his deathbed, I mean, he's actually... He himself, of course, dies of dysentery. And he's on his deathbed and uh, presumably getting weaker and weaker when uh, somebody turns up, a subbada, and asks for ordination, a direct ordination from the Buddha. And he keeps asking, knowing that the Buddha's dying, and Ananda keeps saying, go away, you know, this isn't the time. that The the Buddha's dying, you know, (laughs) come back afterwards and and I'll ordain you. But the Buddha, on hearing this, insists that he be ordained right there and then. So <clears throat> one, of the, uh, one of the, I suppose, blessings, you might say, of the, of the Theravada scriptures is that you really do get a feel of just an ordinary human being, you know, walking around the place and uh, being in contact. There's a, there's, a, there's a little tale in there where somebody walks into a room with, and he's there amongst these monks, and they have to ask him which one is the, you know, which one is the, um, uh, the blessed one, you see. So they get that sort of sense of orderiness, ordinariness and, um, and just a, a real sense of humanity about him. Something which, uh, you know, gets lost when you move into the uh, Mahayana scriptures where, of course, he's, he only appears in his Sambhogakaya, in the, the body of bliss, teaching to um, you know, hundreds of thousands of bodhisattvas. So this brings us back to his uh, simple, simple humanity. There's, um, <clears throat> apart from that, there's, uh, there's a whole business where he's actually engaged in society, um, in the politics of the time. One of the uh, disputes that he helped to uh, disarm was, uh, was around the water rights between his own people, the Sakyas and the Kaleans. And uh, he went up there to uh, help them overcome this argument they were going to uh, enter into some sort of uh, uh, war or something. And he simply asked them what was more uh, precious to them, the water in the river or the blood in their veins. There's a lovely little tale that goes with it where he asks the people who are the leaders, the warrior caste, you know, what is the fight about? And they're not very clear. And then as he comes down to strahd society, they're all, they don't quite know why they're fighting, they're just very angry, <laughs> and they hate the Kaleans, and, uh, and the Kaleans hate the others. And it's only when he gets down to the farmers that the farmers actually make it clear, oh, we're fighting over water rights. Uh, and that, I think that has a sort of uh, certain resonance for these days, huh? exactly why we're fighting. There's only a few people actually know why we go for war. There's uh, another uh, incident where, um, right towards the end of his life, where so so much is happening, uh, the the king Ajatasattu wants to attack the Vajjian confederacy and uh, sends an ambassador along to ask the Buddha whether in fact this was the right time to do it. It's a rather strange thing to do. And uh, the Buddha actually gives him uh, some... Uh, directions as to what maintains a good society and uh, i thought i might just read out his things which some of them uh, i think make sense to us so he turns to ananda and he says ananda have you heard whether the vagians hold frequent and well-attended meetings they do lord as long as they do so ananda they can expect to prosper and not decline have you heard whether they assemble in concord, rise in concord, and do their duty as Vagians in concord, whether they avoid enacting the unenacted or abolishing existing enactments and proceed in accordance with the ancient Vagian laws as enacted, whether they honor, respect, revere, and venerate the Vagian elders, and think they should be heeded whether they live... Uh, uh, well, that's a long sentence... Where, uh, whether they, they honour and respect and venerate the Vajjian shrines both in the towns and country without allowing the lawful ablations hitherto given and made to lapse, whether lawful protection, defence and guarding is provided among the Vajjians for uh, the religious. Here it's the arahat. So he's got these um, uh, various ways in which he says that a community will remain strong. And when the ambassador hears, hears this, he goes back and tells Ajah Sassatu that it's not quite the right time to attack them. So, <clears throat> in that way, he was able to undermine that. Later on, of course, uh, through devious means, uh, Ajah Sassatu did actually attack and take over the Vajjian territory. Um, there's also this uh, quite astonishing story when you think about it. Vidudaba became the next king of, um, uh, after Pasenadi of uh, Kosala. And uh, he was the overlord of the Sakyans. And when Vidudaba wanted to marry into the Sakyan clan, the Sakyans thought that his caste was, was too low for them. So they tricked him into marrying a, a, a lower caste. When Vidudha found out about this, of course, he was utterly mortified and, and uh, determined to attack the Sakyans and destroy them. So the Buddha, having heard this, and knowing that uh, he was out on his elephant, went out and uh, stood before him and uh, was able to turn him back. And he did that a second time and a third time and the fourth time, and this is something to record, when he was told the fourth time he'd gone out, the Buddha said he could do nothing. And uh, it seems those people were attacked and the city was destroyed. And they moved Kapilavatthu. Now this has, a, I think, a teaching for us these days because of our understanding of you know, being engaged in society and how much you can do and being aware of the, the, you know, the circle of power we have and the circle of influence and that once we touch the edge of those circles there's nothing more you can do so any frustration, any disappointment, any despair about the situation which you can't do anything about is actually unnecessary and is coming from some other centre which is not being, shall we say, humble about oneself like what can I do? You see? so anything else after that one has to simply accept is part of the uh, what you might call our social karma, for want of a better phrase. So the Buddha's—he's uh, done his best. He's been out there three times, and when when the fourth time comes, he says he can't do anything, and that's the end of it. Even to, now, towards the end of his life, there's all sorts of things happen. Ajatasattu, uh, this um, king. Uh, kills his father starves his father to death so that he can he can take over the kingdom and he's in uh, he's supporting Devadatta whom I'm sure some of you know Devadatta was the uh, was the monk who decided that he should lead the order and uh, there's a a lovely passage here where he approaches the Buddha I can just find it very quickly Hopefully. Yeah. Lord, the Blessed One is now old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life and come to the last stage. Let the Blessed One now rest. Let him dwell in bliss in the present life. Let him hand over the Sangha of Bhikkhus to me. I will govern the Sangha of Bhikkhus. And the, um, and the Buddha's reply is, Enough, Devadatta. Do not aspire to govern the of Bhikkhus. And so he rebukes him. Devodata then, of course, as you, uh, I'm sure you know, tries to kill him. He sets the elephant, Nalagiri, to rage upon him. And there's a lovely story where the Buddha, as the elephant's coming towards him, uh, just actually offers a, um, uh, his uh, loving kindness towards the elephant, and the elephant actually stops before him, uh, sucks dust from his feet, and blows it over his body and over his own body, not over, not over the Buddha's. <laughs> and uh, uh, and the other one, the other story is because he he rolled a boulder down a hill, which caught the Buddha's uh, big toe, and uh, made it bleed. So David Art has really bad press, but. <laughs> But uh, actually, uh, if you uh, think about what he was trying to do, then uh, in a sense, one can understand uh, what was happening. The Buddha, um, remember, he was, uh, his early life as, a, as an ascetic had been quite uh, basic. You know, living, living under tree roots, living off rag robes, uh, only taking what was in the bowl to eat very, very uh, basic uh, life of a, of a beggar. And uh, as the order grew, and there were invitations to come into the families to, to, to food, to be served food by his supporters, he was given monasteries uh, with rooms and carpets and things like that. And uh, you can understand that, uh, you know, he, uh, um, Devadatta and... It would seem quite a few monks at the time just thought the whole thing was getting very soft. And so he comes with these six demands, you see, that they live only in the forest and not live in villages, that they eat only from arms round and not go to houses, that they only wear robes that are made from the rags off, um, from dead bodies. That's what they, were, you know, they used to get them from. That they lived at the root of a tree and that they were vegetarian and not uh, meat-eaters. And... Uh, what this brings us to is you know uh, the Buddha's uh, the Buddha's feel for uh, you know not being uh, fundamentalist not being rigid um, recognising that within any society there has to be some sort of latitude there has to be some sort of give and take um, in the uh, when he starts the order. He doesn't seem to come from any ideal. He's not sort of sat down and thought, now, you know, what sort of order do I want to create? Uh, there were the basic rules of those times of how you should live if you had um, left the holy life, uh, left the, um, uh, the lay life, and uh, undertaken what became known as the brahmacharya, the holy life. So he was simply following the, uh, the um, customs of the day, As people said to him, well, you know, we'd like to join you, we'd like you to be uh, our teacher, our guru, as they would say, um, he said, well, do likewise. So for 20 years, such were the quality of um, people who joined him that there wasn't any need to create a rule. And then as people with less uh, integrity, you might say, joined, then uh, things began to get done which which, uh, were... against the customs of the day and he would, he would organize he would, he would make a rule about it so the, the institution of the Sangha as it grew up wasn't something which came from an ideal it just gathered this law as people did wrong um, as people uh, made mistakes and then he would make a rule so eventually there came this sort of body of law by the end of his life uh, which constitutes the institution and uh, if you think about an institution, an institution has an aim, and it has a body of law, a body of rules and regulations, which hopefully make that aim possible. So, when he's instituting or when he's developing the uh, the sangha, the only duties that he uh, says that order members have is to study the Dharma and to practice vipassana. That's the actual duties that uh, a monk or nun. How? There's, no, there's actually no duty there to teach. And uh, there came this complaint where the lay people had, uh, had gathered on a full moon day where the Buddhist uh, monks and nuns were gathered in a park. And that was the uh, custom of the day, the full moon, very bright, very easy to see. And they would spend uh, the, uh, the moon hours, the moonlit hours, discussing Dharma. That was what... Uh, Seems to have been the great custom of the day. So they complained to the Buddha that when they approached um, uh, his monks and nuns, they just sat there like dumb pigs. That's what they said. <laughs> so then there came this rule that if you were asked a question of Dharma, you had to answer it. But it wasn't, it's interesting to to know that that's uh, should we say, something that the monastic does because of a response. So uh, it's it's not it's not within the tradition to go out and proselytize. One has to wait. One has to wait to be asked. You see. Um, I wanted to. We have the idea of the of the Buddha being a um, uh, a very warm, uh, compassionate, huggy-wuggy, touchy-feely sort of person. But uh, I thought I'd read out to you uh, what happened when, um, when somebody actually goes against the rule. And I, unless you've read the Vinaya, the books on the Vinaya, uh, you probably won't have come across this. Now, uh, the only one in this book, unfortunately, is to do with the, um, is the first Parajika. Now, a Parajika, there are four Parajikas, whereby if a monk or, or nun... As you know, the, uh, the nun order died out about a thousand years ago, but it has been re-established, and there are, to date, I heard anyway, about 200 fully ordained nuns in Sri Lanka. Now, Suddhina had left his wife um, because of his uh, urge to seek liberation. But when he went back home, they... they, in, they, they Cajoled and insisted that he cohabit with his wife to produce a child, so that the family would be uh, would continue. And falling for the arguments, S- uh, Sudina does cohabit with his wife, and uh, she she has uh, she gives birth and a son. However, when uh, when the monks heard about this, they of course rushed to the Buddha and said, "Do you know what he did?" And so the Buddha uh, brings him to him, and uh, I'll just give you a bit of the language so you can get a feel for him as, uh, shall we say, um, uh, well, the leader, you know, the, the, the tough leader. Misguided man, it is unfitting, unseemly, improper and unworthy of a monk. It is unrighteous and must not be done. How can you not live out the holy life in complete perfection and purity after going forth into homelessness in the Dharma and discipline as well as proclaimed as this? Misguided man, have I not taught the Dhamma in various ways for the sake of dispassion, not for the sake of passion? Have I not taught the Dhamma for the sake of unfettering, not for the sake of fettering? Have I not taught the Dhamma for the sake of relinquishing, not for the sake of clinging? The Dhamma thus taught by me for dispassion, unfettering and relinquishment you would conceive to be for passion, fettering and clinging. Has the Dhamma not been taught by me in various ways uh, for dispassion for disintoxication for curing thirst for abolishing attachment for severing the round of being for exhausting craving for dispassion for cessation for nirvana have i not described in many ways the abandoning of sensual desires the full understanding of perceptions of sensual desires the curing of thirst for sensual desires the eradication of thoughts of sensual desires the allaying of the fever of sensual desires misguided man It would be better for you as one gone forth that your member should have entered the mouth of a hideous venomous viper or a cobra than it should have entered a woman. It were better for you that your member should enter into a pit of coals burning, blazing and glowing than it should have entered a woman. Why is that? For the former reason you would risk death and deadly suffering but you would not on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a state of privation and unhappy in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But for the latter reason, you would do so. Therefore, misguided man, by this act, you would pursue the Dharma's opposite. You would pursue the low, vulgar ideal that is impure and ends in ablution. And, and he carries on like that. So, so you can see, <laughs> you see, he holds no punches, doesn't mince his words. He's very clear about, you know, if you, if you undertake the rule, uh, then that's what you do. You don't, you don't fall for arguments of this and arguments of that. So uh, we also have to balance uh, our idea of the Buddha as uh, somebody who's very clear, very, very precise about, you know, the way he wants people to behave. Now, this sila, this uh, conduct, which we've just, you know, uh, uh, just chanted before. So the five basic ones, of course, are to do with our uh, moral behavior. And uh, what we have to really grasp is that our unethical behavior is a measure of our delusion. Delusion expresses itself in the way we speak, uh, act, and, and, and what we do. And therefore, whenever we do something wrong, it mirrors back to us uh, the level of our delusion.
0: Yeah?
1: And that's, uh, that's another reason why, if you... If you start, if you put your accent on, uh, making sure that what we do and what we think and what we say is wholesome and uh, skillful, it comes, it comes back, on, it comes back on, the, on the path and comes back to our understanding and our compassion. Hmm? So this, uh, these three things of right understanding, right attitude and right action, speech, body uh, and thoughts, um, are a, a wheel which turn around each other so it doesn't matter where you start on those three it's going to affect the other two so I think I've just got time for the um, for the last last little bit here so I just want to there's a lovely sweet little thing here which uh, gives us a feel for those last days So as he's approaching old age you see Ananda says to him It is wonderful Lord, it is marvellous Now the colour of the blessed one's skin Is no more clear and bright All his limbs are flaccid and wrinkled His body is bent forward And there seems a change in the sense faculties Of his eyes, ears, nose, tongue And bodily sensations And the Buddha replies Well so it is Ananda, so it is Youth has to age Health has to sicken." and life has to die. Now the color of my skin is no more clear and bright. All my limbs are flaccid and wrinkled, my body's bent forward, and there seems a change in the sense faculties of my eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and bodily sensation. So uh, you get these little hints throughout the scriptures that uh, you know, he's also very much aware of his own dying. And then there's, um, there's a, a lovely little bit here which I would like to read out to you. So now, if you can uh, gather, this Ananda has been, a, has been accompanying the Buddha for 20 years, tending to all his needs, you know, protecting him from people, taking over. Uh, like, for instance, the Buddha had a bad back. So one talk, he says to him, listen, my back's really bad, can you, can you take over my talk, you see? Um, and since my back is bad, I have a direct feel for that of the Buddha's life. I think that's... Probably where the similarity ends, but there we are. (laughs) And he says, poor poor Venerable Anda, seeing the Buddha now coming to the end of his days, you see. Then the Venerable Anda went inside a dwelling and he stood leaning against the doorbar and wept. I am still only a learner whose task is not yet completed. My teacher is about to attain final Dibhana, my teacher who has compassion on me. Then the Blessed One asked the, the, the bhikkhus, bhikkhus, monks, where is Ananda? Lord, he has just gone inside a dwelling and he is standing, leaning against the door, the door bar weeping. I am still only a learner whose task is yet to be completed. My teacher is about to attain final divana, my teacher who has compassion on me. And the Blessed One told the bhikkhu, come bhikkhus, go to Ananda and say to him in my name, the teacher calls you friend Ananda. Even so, Lord, and the bhikkhu replied, and he went to the Venerable Ananda and said to him, The teacher calls you, friend Ananda. Even so, the Venerable Ananda replied, and he went to the Blessed One. Paying homage to him, he stood at one side, and the Blessed One said to him, Enough, Ananda. Do not sorrow, do not lament. Have I not, have I not already repeatedly told you that there is separation and parting and division from all that is dear and beloved? How could it be that what is born, come into being, formed and bound to fall, should not fall. That is not possible, Ananda. You have long and constantly attended on the perfect one, on the Tathagata, with bodily acts of loving kindness, helpfully, gladly, sincerely and without reserve. And so too with verbal acts and mental acts. You have made merit, Ananda. Keep on endeavouring and you will soon be free from the taints. It's a nice little scene. Touching. So now we actually come towards his, um, his death. And uh, as he's dying, he asks, are there any more questions? So he's got all these monks have gathered around him. And no more questions are coming. And then very uh, sensitively, he says, listen, if you have a question, but you're not, you, don't, you feel a bit ashamed about asking it, or you feel a bit, uh, you don't have the courage to ask somebody else to ask it for you and then there's more silence and then at that point he, um, he decides to, uh, to die not before he's spoken his last words so as he, before he goes he says whatever is formed and compounded will dissolve work diligently for your own liberation hmm? and whenever I read that I always ask myself well I wonder what my last words will be you know? why me? <laughs> something, something like that and I always remember in Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and he shoots all these enemies, and uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, but his last words are, this shouldn't have happened. I <laughs> oh, thought was marvellous. And then, and then there's a story of dear Oscar Wilde, who, as you know, um, uh, became derelict at the end of his life and was dying in a, a room in Paris as a destitute. And... Um, He hated the wallpaper and it seems as though he turned to the wallpaper and his last words were one of us will have to go. (laughs) (laughs) So there's all these lovely last words, you know. So there's the Buddha with just very simply saying listen, everything that is formed or compounded will dissolve. Work diligently for your own liberation. And finally going back to the um, earlier talk I gave. After his death uh, there's a certain Brahma a Brahmin called Mogalana, who asks uh, Ananda is there any single uh, monk who possesses in all ways and in every way those qualities that Master Gautama possessed?" and uh, Ananda refuses to reply he doesn't, he doesn't reply to it and right at the end of this particular discourse this is what Ananda says the blessed one was the arouser of the unarisen path, the producer of the unproduced path, the declarer of the undeclared path, the path knower, the path seer, skilled in the path. When disciples dwelling in conformity with the path become possessed of it, they do so after him. And that's really the position of the Buddha. So I entitled these talks, the Buddha as Archetype and Exemplar. And... uh, it's, uh, it can be heartwarming to begin to read the scriptures and to flesh out the, uh, the Dharma rather than four of these and four of those and all that and to recognize that there was an actual human being who uh, lived through this and came to, it, came to this wonderful conclusion for us. And with that, there arises that lovely feeling of gratitude. And here you see this, this wonderful center it simply wouldn't have happened if 2,500 years ago, uh, this particular person had not made this breakthrough. And uh, finally, when he, uh, when Ananda says to him, "Who are you going to leave to, you know, uh, govern govern the uh, the order when you go?" So his his reply is, and uh, I may as well read the actual text. Um, he says each of you should make himself an island himself and no other his refuge each of you should take the dharma as an island the dharma and no other refuge and how do we do that here uh, you abide contemplating the body as a body ardent fully mindful and aware having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, contemplating consciousness as consciousness, contemplating mental objects as mental objects, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Either now or when I am gone, it is those, whoever they may be, who make themselves their island themselves, unto themselves, and no other uh, uh, island who make uh, the Dhamma their island, and the uh, the Dhamma, and no other refuge to themselves, who will be foremost amongst my disciples of those that is who want to train. So his final, um, shall we say, instructions to us was that eventually uh, we, you know, we have to find that strength within ourselves. We have to what we're doing here is to uh, find a way or taking his teachings as a refuge taking that Dharma as a refuge to uh, find for ourselves our own liberation Mm -hmm. and uh, you know that old teaching that uh, uh, the Buddhas only point the way and that's all they can do Mm -hmm. it's left to us to to do the work So I think that brings me to the end of my sojourning. There's lots of stuff I haven't um, touched upon uh, around the life of the Buddha. Uh, I haven't actually, unfortunately, it was there written on my script, but I, <laughs> I, I, I skipped over it. It was, that, was the whole incident around women and joining the order, uh, but I'm sure you've heard all those sorts of things before. So uh, the purpose really is to, um, to be inspired by his life and his works and to make them our own so I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance to you may you be fully liberated even before you leave this center Uh, the last thing I I want to say is that this is uh, my last interviews will be on Sunday Uh, my, my tour of duty is coming to an end By the end of this month. And uh, on Monday, I shall also be moving in and joining you as a yogi. And what I was hoping to do on the Sunday talk was to just round all this off with some uh, talk around the four Brahma Viharas, love, compassion, joy. And then uh, to do uh, an exercise around metta, developing metta, and looking at the problems of forgiveness. And that, I thought, might be just a nice way to round it off for me personally. Thank you. So, shall we... uh We'll just sit silently for a little a moment there and we'll, then we'll chant the sharing of blessing
0: Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, The sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbāna In every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigour. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled.